Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Is moral grandstanding the practice of making moral claims to show how moral we are, to impress others with our sincerity or concern? Is this a good or a bad thing? Is it harmful? Does it harm other people? Does it harm our democracy? And finally, is it something that a good and virtuous person would do? My guests today have just published a book on this topic, Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk, by Justin Tossey and Brandon Womke. Justin is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Texas Tech University. He works on moral, social, political and legal philosophy. And Brandon is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University, and he writes on ethics and politics. I'm not going to do a super long introduction to this one. I think in the interview, as you'll hear, um, the guests introduce themselves, and we go through the topic in a way that's pretty self-explanatory. We go back and forth on a few things, and I introduce a couple of my usual wheelhouses to the discussion, and overall I thought this was a really fun conversation, so I hope you enjoy it too. Just a quick note, as always, that if you do enjoy these podcasts, which go out for free and advertisement-free, I'm a firm believer that having the host of a podcast try to sell you um, underwear or men pattern baldness cures in the middle of the show both interrupts the flow of the conversation and can be, at least for me, somewhat credibility diminishing. So this is a free podcast funded entirely by the generous support of listeners. So if you enjoy conversations like this and want to see more of them, consider chipping in. You can do that at patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and really, it's suggested donation. I've been suggesting people chip in $2 an episode, but really it's up to you. You want to chip in a buck? You want to chip in a hundred bucks? Whatever feels right to you. So once again, that's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast to do that. If you enjoy the show but aren't in a financial position to contribute, then another way you can help support it is by leaving positive reviews on iTunes or just sharing it on your social media. That's actually really powerful for us finding new listeners. We talk about Twitter in, uh, in this episode, and for all its flaws, it is a very good method for people who don't have advertisers or like institutional backing behind them to go out and find listeners for their for their um, product. So anyway, if you like the show, please do support in any of those ways. And as always, a big thank you for anyone who does any or all of those things. I'm really grateful for the support, as always, um, that my listeners show me. Apart from la- that, let's get straight to it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you a discussion of moral grandstanding with Justin Tossie and Brandon Womke. <clears throat> okay. 
I am joined today by Justin Tosi and Brandon Wonke, uh, professors. Thanks so much for both joining me today. Thanks for having us, Toby. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's just start with who you are, um, with no particular order of preference. Um, Justin, uh, what do you do and what are the issues you like to think and teach and research on? Sure. Uh, so I am assistant professor of philosophy at Texas Tech University. Uh, I'm trained as a, a political and, and legal philosopher, uh, but I guess with this book and this project, I've, I've gotten more interested in uh, social and moral philosophy. Uh, so I, I like to write about stuff in the area of this book, free expression, uh, about social morality. Uh, and then my more political work is about special obligations and in particular political obligations. So I write about uh, whether there's a duty to obey the law, whether states uh, have the rights that they, they claim to have over us. Cool, cool. And Brandon? Uh, yeah, I'm, a, uh, I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Bowling Green State University, which is in Northwest Ohio. Um, I, di I did a PhD in philosophy. Justin and I actually went to grad school together. Uh, we, we overlapped um, my, my entire time there. Uh, I'm, I'm trained more as a moral philosopher. Um, I wrote a dissertation on forgiveness, and a lot of what I've written is on moral responsibility um, and some other issues in, in ethics. But uh, yeah, it was about 2014 when when Justin and I started talking about um, the topic of this book and, and devoted our attention to that. So what's the story there? The book is Grandstanding, The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I might be missing something. I haven't... I don't recall a book in the field specifically on grandstanding before. I hope not. <laughs> I hope we're the, the first. So here's the story. Um... <clears throat> I, sure, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but here's the story. So it's about 2014, and um, and Justin and I were were, grad, were PhD students at the University of Arizona in Tucson, and we would hang out late at night and eat eat tacos and nachos, and we would complain about the way academics talk online, and uh, it seemed to us that, and I don't know if we had noticed it much before 2000. 14, 13, 14, but it's a lot of people that we saw talking about morality and politics seem to be in it for themselves. They, they seem to be trying to <clears throat> engage in a competition to impress um, one another. And we thought, well, no one's really written on this. Um, and it seems like a topic ripe for attention, both from philosophy and from um, empirical psychology. So we started writing a paper I, that would have been spring and summer of 2014. We'd, we'd, um, we'd write at a coffee shop and then, um, go out and eat nachos until about one o'clock and, uh, at night and, and talk about the topic. So that's how, that's how we got started. We, we originally published, a um, a paper in a journal called philosophy and public affairs, um, where we first explored the topic, it got quite a bit of attention, and then um, we we were approached by um, Oxford University Press about interest in a book, and so um, we were very lucky. Um, we wrote a book. Wrote the book. It took about a year and a half to write the book, and then 
throughout the time writing the book, we, we paired up with an empirical psychologist, Joshua Grubbs, who's, um, who's here actually at Bowling Green State University, works on narcissism and other topics. And so um, we've actually done um, about six studies with 6,000 participants right now trying to empirically uh, study grandstanding as well. Okay, cool. Are you guys on academic social media these days? <clears throat> do you do, you do uh, like academic Twitter and such? I am unfortunately uh, on academic <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Um, that's uh, I, I I held out on Twitter until just about a year ago. I tried to avoid it, but uh, it became. I think unavoidable uh, when it comes to promoting the book, so I jumped on. I'm not happy. Yeah. With it. I'm I'm mostly off of it now. I've I've quit Facebook, and uh, I was mostly using Twitter because Brandon would always bother me to to tweet the paper at people. <laughs> I, I got tired of yeah. it, and yeah, uh, we, I, I I think I. I don't have the stomach for it. I can't I can't take it anymore. Um, so I've I've mostly just stopped, and I I post. Uh, silly things instead when I, when I even bother. Okay, I mean, I, I, I have a similar experience. I, I'm only on Twitter for the podcast. It's just, it is just a really good, like, distribution mechanism. Oh, yeah. You know, like, you can definitely reach people that you wouldn't be able to reach um, Yeah. Otherwise. I'll say this, too. I mean, it, you, you can really learn things on, on Twitter. Um, so there are fields that... So I don't mean to to throw philosophy under the bus, but there are fields that do Twitter better. Um, so so the social sciences in particular, uh, I think, are they have a lot of people who are really quite good at, at disseminating their their findings, and they somehow stay out of the political spats that uh, that occupy so much of philosophers' time on on social media. Um, so I, I follow a lot of those folks, and uh, I, I do like them, but. Uh. I don't know. I, I, yeah. I, yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah, I, I somewhat like philosophy Twitter. I tune in and out of it. With the recent, I mean, I'm recording this now in the middle of the New York lockdown. So I don't have much to do, and I do just find myself um, sort of just scrolling through Twitter. And because my handle is the podcasts, like the people I interact with are all philosophy academics. I don't know. I, I, I sometimes feel... We can we can oversell its negatives, which are certainly certainly there, you know. Yeah. Well, I'm glad um, I'm glad one of us is an optimist. <laughs> it's yeah. It's not all it's not all terrible. Uh, it's just uh, you know it's it's not a great format. I, I think for getting into serious philosophical disputes and and then uh, it. I think does tend to quickly devolve into, into grandstanding when anything uh, controversial comes up. Well, so let's get into the topic of the book then. Um, what would this just start at the basic conceptual level? What do you mean by grandstanding? So, if you um, had a bumper sticker and you wanted a really quick and simple. Uh, description of grandstanding. Grandstanding happens when people use public discourse for self-promotion. Um, they use public discourse, discussion about morality, politics, justice, family values, rights, to try to impress other people with their moral qualities. So grandstanders treat 
public discourse as a vanity project. Um, and um, so we think of grandstanding um, in a way as having two basic parts. So there's the thing the grandstander says. This is what we call the grandstanding expression. Someone might say something like, you know, as someone who has long fought for um, the plight of the oppressed, I cannot stomach watching anyone um, not defend a minimum wage of $20 an hour. I'm absolutely disgusted. Okay, so that might be, you know, an example of a grandstanding expression. And uh, the second part of the account is the uh, when grandstanders say these things, they're motivated to a very high degree by a desire to impress other people. And we call this the recognition desire. We call it that because grandstanders are out for recognition. They want to impress people with their moral qualities. And um, so that's, that's the basic account is that you, you, you're basically saying something in public discourse um, and a large reason or a big reason why you're doing it is to try to impress other people. Um, it's, it's, it's an attempt to co-opt public discourse for, for self-promotion and status-seeking. Um, so one bit that I was interested in in the book is you sort of compare and contrast with this idea of virtue signaling, which has become a bit of a meme recently. Yeah. Because um, what you're saying sounds like quite a similar description to what people give of virtue signaling, um, although the terminology is a little different. I've been a little bit of a skeptic of the virtue signaling idea, not because I think that it isn't real. It clearly relates to a real phenomenon, and clearly a lot of the stuff that we do is about projecting <clears throat> a certain image of ourselves for the consumption of others. Um I, my my scepticism is more practical. I think the term virtue signaling has kind of become a catch-all term to describe any sorts of claims about social justice with which people disagree. And it's kind of just become untethered from a specific thing, calling out a specific obnoxious behaviour, to just writing off entire movements that may or may not have legitimate concerns, right? So... That's sort of my feelings on virtue signaling. How would, how do you think your account differs or coheres with virtue signaling as an idea? Good. Yeah, it's a good question. So as I, you know, I mentioned earlier, we um, we started writing about grandstanding in 2014, and at that time, that was the only term that was around for preening moral talk. Around 2015 and 16 is when. Um, this virtue signaling term took off. It actually feels like it's been with us longer, but but it really hasn't. Um, and we noticed people talking about virtue signaling, and and then it, you know it came to a point where you know we we'd give a talk or we'd talk about this online, and people would say things like, "Oh, you mean like virtue signaling?" And, and we'd say, "Like, no, people have been using the term grandstanding for you know it dates back over a hundred years to to refer to showy showy behavior." Um, so, you look, you're absolutely right, Toby, that that the term virtue signaling has been co-opted into the culture wars, and um, we did not intend to enter the culture wars. Um, with this work, uh, and 
One reason is because our account of grandstanding, the, the psychological ingredients of grandstanding are perfectly general and nonpartisan. Hmm. And, and a lot of our empirical work shows that um, people on the left and on the right are equally as likely or motivated to, to engage in this kind of behavior. Although, as it turns out, the more extreme you are, the more more polarized you are on the right and the left, you're more likely to engage in this kind of behavior. But there's, there's no difference, as far as we can tell, um, about whether people on the right or the left engage in this behavior. But it's an unfortunate artifact that the term virtue signaling has come to be identified with accusations from the right against the left. Now, we think that for a variety of reasons, the term virtue signaling is actually not very helpful. Um, here are a few reasons. So one is um, signaling as a concept in economics and biology and psychology refers to or can refer to either an intentional or witting um, attempt to communicate information, but it can also refer to um, Information that can be communicated whether you want to or try to or not. So think of the peacock, right? The peacock's feathers communicate information, right? So you got to be really strong to, to lug that thing around. But the, but the, the peacock didn't grow those feathers um, in an attempt to show people how strong they are. Um, bugs have bright colors to... <clears throat> Worn off predators, but bugs have no idea <laughs> whether they have these bright colors or not. And so signaling is something that is um, prevalent throughout the animal kingdom. Humans do signaling even when they don't know it, you know, walking into, you know, a Whole Foods, driving a Prius, right, listening to NPR. These things signal features about us or can signal features about us, whether we're trying to or not. When we talk about grandstanding, we're not talking about some accidental or incidental um, feature of our behavior. People who grandstand are seeking attention. They want to impress other people with their moral qualities. And so virtue signaling doesn't really capture the, the um, intentional or desirous element um, that grandstanding um, has. Another problem with the term virtue signaling is that um, – you know, as we point out in the book, a lot of a lot of grandstanding is just an attempt to show that you're morally decent. Now, as it turns out, a lot of people fall below the threshold of moral decency, um, and so you you know you still think you're better than other people. But a lot of grandstanding is just, hey, I I I care minimally um, about the poor or family values, and all of you schlubs don't don't even don't even come close. Um, so a lot of grandstanding is of, the, of that nature, but virtue, you know, the way that philosophers think of virtue, is virtue is an excellence. Virtue is, is to be exceptional. So not all grandstanding um, is, in, is aimed at trying to convince other people that you're morally exceptional. Of course, a lot of it, a lot of it is. Um, I mean, there are lots of other reasons that we've come across to avoid the term. I mean, one is that it's politically charged, um, but Here's one thing to, to keep in mind, and um, it's absolutely true that accusations of virtue signaling or grandstanding can be used as a way to undermine 
people's moral discourse. That's absolutely true. People, people accuse others of virtue signaling um, either as an attempt to, sh- to show that what they're saying is false or an attempt to show that the person is insincere. But on our view of grandstanding, um, grandstanders can say true things and they can believe what they say. And so there's no impediment to grandstanders saying true things, being sincere. All that has to be true for someone to grandstand is that they say something that's motivated by a strong desire to impress other people. And so um, we think it's just a a total mistake that people make when they make accusations of grandstanding to think that they're undermining someone's speech. They're showing someone they're criticizing someone to be insincere or to be mistaken. That's, that's just not what an accusation of grandstanding um, would claim. And for lots of other reasons, we think that you shouldn't go around accusing people for grandstanding. Maybe we can get to that later. But um, you're absolutely right that, that virtue signaling, I mean, Justin and I would prefer the term sort of go away um, um, because it has been co-opted into the cultural wars in a very unhelpful way. Um, but grandstanding, we think, captures a, a more robust and accurate conception of, of what's actually going on. Um, but if the difference is to do with intentionality, could you have a statement that it's not immediately clear whether it's grandstanding or not? So I could take a particular problem I see in the news, like, say, police killing, and I could highlight it publicly and say, I think this is wrong for these reasons. You know, you don't, do you necessarily know just looking at that statement, was my motivation a genuine desire to create awareness of this problem or was it to receive certain recognitions from myself? Because it, it could be either or it could be a balance of the two, right? How do you, That's right. you know, if you're looking at a statement, what makes that grandstanding to an observer who doesn't know the motivations of the grandstander? Yeah, this is a really, this is a really tricky thing um, about grandstanding is that grandstand you it's almost i wouldn't say impossible it's very difficult to look at a piece of written text or to look at what someone says and to be justifiably certain or confident that that's grandstanding and the reason simply is because you know if you think back to our our basic account of grandstanding Part of what it means to grandstand is to be motivated in a certain way. And those motivations are inside your head, and I don't have access to what is in your head. So a helpful way to think about grandstanding is think about it on analogy with something like lying. It's very difficult to tell whether someone is lying. Uh, I mean, simply stating something false is not a sufficient condition for lying. To lie, you have to intend or want to deceive someone. Um, And so uh, it's very difficult to know whether someone is trying to, um, is trying to lie or not. And um, so similarly with, with grandstanding, it's very difficult to look at a piece of speech and determine whether someone is grandstanding or not. This is another reason why we think that you just shouldn't go around <laughs> accusing people of grandstanding. It's for various reasons. It's very hard to tell when someone is. Um, but just you know, just like it's difficult to know whether someone is lying uh, or bragging, 
Um, it's difficult to know if there's someone who's grandstanding. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, I mean, we do know people lie to us, and we do know people brag. No, I mean, I also wonder, though, to the extent to which it's unclear in people's own heads. People aren't always transparent with their motivations when they communicate with other people. But we're also not particularly transparent with our motivations for ourselves. I don't think... That's right. I don't think people think I'm going to post this on Twitter because I want to be perceived in a certain way. I think they think I'm genuinely morally outraged about this, so on and so forth, and oh, look at all the likes I got. You know what I mean? I think we're much more... um, I don't want to say self-deceptive, but... um, we, we're much less straightforward with our own motivations than I think we would um, want to be. That's right. Yeah, we, um, we discussed this in the book. We, we make a distinction between what we call witting grandstanding and utting unwitting grandstanding. So witting grandstanding happens when you're basically aware of your motivations. You, know, you think to yourself, man, I, I really want to show these people that I have the right views. And I think a lot of people if they're honest with themselves, can at least admit that sometimes they're doing that, that, that they're thinking, I'm going to show these people what a good person looks like. I mean, I, I've felt that way um, um, online. And um, I think, so sometimes we do have um, an awareness of what our motivations are, but you're absolutely right. A lot of our motivations are not transparent to us. Um, we, for evolutionary reasons, self-deceive when our behavior is self-serving because we know, well, we, we, we can give plausible deniability when someone calls us on it. We can say, oh, no, I didn't, I didn't mean that. And we can say that with like, full sincerity, right, because we weren't, we weren't wasn't a, transparent to us what we were doing. Um, and so this is one of the dangers of, of self-serving behavior is that it's often – opaque to us what we are really doing. Um, but I think there's other phenomenon like that too, like sometimes bragging. I think sometimes we, we might say something in the moment, not really realizing what we're doing. And then later we're like, Oh man, that was really, that was really braggy. I shouldn't have said that. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely, I mean, you're, you're absolutely correct that a lot of our behavior, um, and our motivations going into it are not always transparent to us. Okay, so Brandon, we've been following a line of thought. Let's get um, Justin. Um, before we go on to the next bit, Justin, is there anything you want to build on or add to, to what we just said? Um, you know, I, I guess I, I would like to emphasize the one thing that, that Brandon said, um, <clears throat> which is that, you know, we talk to people about this and... Um, Many like you, I think, understandably want to go straight to the the idea. Of, well, let's talk about people accusing uh, one another of grandstanding because I mean, or or of, of virtue signaling, uh, also commonly, um, and that you know that is a problem. That's right. Uh, but the main point of, of our our project is is to talk about the phenomenon itself. Right. So there are all these issues. How can you tell if someone's doing it? Should people call each other out? Um, but most of um, of the moral problems with, with uh, in, you know, in, in this area are with um, just people engaging in, in grandstanding, the things that uh, they they do or say uh, because they're they're grandstanding. Um, so, you know, if we focus just on. Um, the times when the actual term is invoked, 
uh, we're going to miss a, a big part of, of what we should be evaluating morally, uh, which is what happens when people grandstand. Uh, it's, it's a lot of stuff that's, that's not, uh, not too morally pretty. Uh, so I guess we can talk more about that if the the costs of grandstanding. Yeah, let's let's right. move on to like what you see as the the drawbacks. I'll give you just before we do that one sort of thought I had going into your book is a lot of the examples you use and what we think about when we think about grandstanding is very like excessive, um, like flowery language about I am disgusted by this. This is. And that puts me off for a reason that might be slightly separate to your concerns, but maybe fits in with them. And the thing I always think is, um, a lot of the times when you're moral, making moral claims, you are describing things about the world. And the particular language you use matters, not in terms of how severe it is, but because different normative words mean different things. So if I say, this particular policy will have consequences that will lead to suffering. That is a particular claim about the world that can be true or false in virtue of several things. Or I can say, this particular policy might actually have good consequences, but it violates an important norm in our politics. Those are two different claims. I'm saying different things. And I think when people make moral claims online or in person, they don't focus on, like, what specifically they're claiming about the world. They focus on, like, how bad it is. And this is really bad, therefore I'm going to use the most excessive language. And it just sort of leads to an inaccuracy, because saying something is harmful or something is disgusting are different claims about the world. And I don't know, I find myself just wishing, not that people used more or less severe moral language, but they used it more precisely. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Uh, so. So one of the things that uh, we point out that, you know, if, if you're trying to, to understand how people behave when they grandstand, um, one of the things that, that people do is that uh, they engage in these sort of moral arms races. One of the, one of the things that happens when they do that, uh, as, as you point out, uh, is that they say things like, you know, someone might say, well, I, I'm sort of upset about this. Um, this seems like a bad policy. Uh, and, and then people are like, upset? Upset? Like, you're, that's, that's the best you can do? Like, I'm devastated. And, you know, another person's like, I am, you know, looking for sturdy beams in, in my garage <laughs> or this, this policy. Yeah. Uh, so so you're, you're right. Things, things kind of get out of, well, depending on what the policy is, uh, things, things get out of hand. Uh, um, and that's one of the ways. So um, one thing that I thought you were going to say uh, is, you know, so you you focused, you said, you know, there there are different things we focus on. So the badness of the thing and then the degree of its badness. Um, but you said, you know, people say I'm disgusted. Um, so one thing that jumps out to me uh, about a, a lot of moral talk that makes me suspect uh, that the person uh, speaking is, is grandstanding uh, is that what they say becomes um, sort of oddly focused on them uh, in a way. Um, so, so it's it's like it's not just you know this this is a bad policy. So we can talk you know about the objective features of of the of the proposal or, or you know of this um, of this state of affairs that make it bad. Uh, it's about how it makes me feel. So I need everyone to know I am very upset about this thing, uh, and that says something about how morally sensitive I am. Um, now that may be related to how bad the thing is, uh, but 
it's all run through this filter of, of me, me, me. Um, um, okay, so then let, let's move on to cost. So we've described this thing, we've bounced it around a bit. Why does it matter? Like, people make all sorts of moral claims for all sorts of reasons. Um, if I'm just being, you know, a stone-cold rationalist about it, I can say, well, the moral claim might be true or false. Why do I care why they're doing it? What are the, well, let's start with what are the costs to others, and then the virtue stuff, and um, should we go back to... Answer in whatever order you guys see fit, but should we go back to Brandon? What are the costs to others in your eyes of grandstanding? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll mention a couple, and then maybe Justin can mention a couple. So, um, so one, one cost, one big cost is, um, now when, when you're thinking about the cost of grandstanding, you have to think about the consequences of self-promoting, of, of using moral discourse to self-promote. So um, you can't just look at isolated cases of grandstanding and say, what's so bad about that? Um, we have to assess what's going to happen when people use discourse for egoistic or self-serving purposes. And our view is that, look, public discourse is not just this public resource that we can treat however we want. Um, it only works if we treat it with respect. With we, you know, it you can only stand up for the oppressed in public discourse if people take public discourse seriously. And and so our view is that generally you should set your own egoistic interests aside and use public discourse for greater purposes. Um, moral talk is the point of moral talk is not the promotion of your reputation or to impress other people. So we have to think about like, okay, what are the aims of public discourse? And then what does moral grandstanding do? And now whatever you think the aims are, we think that self-promotion is not one of the more important ones. So what are the consequences then of people using moral discourse to self-promote? Well, here's one, and it has to do with what Justin mentioned earlier about moral arms races. And one form that grandstanding often takes is what we call ramping up. There's a, there's a kind of like competitive aspect to these moral claims. Or you might say, you know, what the senator was did was bad. She should be censured. And someone says, oh, well, you know, that's all. Like, I think, I think she should be, um, you know, uh, impeached or whatever. And then someone else says, well, no, she should actually be arrested. There's a kind of um, competitive nature to to moral discourse. And we've argued that this contributes to some forms of political polarization. When people are motivated for moral reasons having to do with seeing themselves as morally impressive, to take um, stronger and stronger moral stances not only on your side, but the other side's doing this too, right? So these two sides are sort of distancing themselves from one another in order to look morally different than the other side. And also there are competitions within your own side to see who can look the most morally impressive. Um, our thought is, is that these, there are going to be pressures that push people away from each other, not just in virtue of what they believe, but also in virtue of their um, emotional reactions to one another. So it's not just enough to 
hate Biden supporters or Trump supporters. You must despise them. Otherwise, you're not, you know, morally pure enough. And um, some of the research that we've done with Joshua Grubbs, um, the psychologist, um, suggests that uh, people who are strongly inclined to grandstand um, do have more polarized beliefs. And the causal arrow seems to suggest that grandstanding does have a role to play in pushing people apart. Um, now, this is bad, um, not just because polarization is bad, because of the way the dynamics of grandstanding-driven polarization works. I mean, keep in mind, I mean, extreme views aren't necessarily false, um, right? And so, um, now, of course, you might your side might be moving towards a true view, but the other side's moving even further away from the true view. That's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind, though, is that the incentive structures of grandstanding, the, the motivations to polarize, to take extreme views, are not truth-sensitive. The reasons why people are moving have to do with um, what they think will impress their peers or humiliate their enemies. And these are not truth-sensitive processes. These are not this doesn't have to do with evidence or reasons, right? People are not taking up these positions because they've been convinced by an argument. They're taking up positions because they think these things will um, give them social prestige with their in-group or give them dominance and control over the out-group. And there's no good reason to think that those processes are going to give us true beliefs. Um, I think that's not a you know, you don't want people forming their political views about what impresses their friends or dominates their enemies. And so one worry is that when grandstanding gets introduced into public discourse and you have a grandstanding rich um, uh, field of, of moral conversations, people are being pushed to opposite corners of the political spectrum for bad reasons. So, so can I try and summarize that? Um, sure. <laughs> so there's kind of like yeah. two distinct or slightly distinct claims there. Um, and we'll get on to grandstanding and virtue, but both of these are sort of um, broadly consequentialist arguments insofar as grandstand, or I guess like rule consequentialist, because like you're not saying grandstanding is bad because this specific instance directly harms someone. You're saying grandstanding is bad because as a rule, it increases polarization within our public discourse, which is bad, and as our, a rule, it introduces a, a norm or a practice into our public discourse, which is not truth-seeking, which we have no good reason to believe will help our public discourse cohere on the truth. Yeah. Um, I guess there's a couple of thoughts I have here, though, is... Um, Let's just take the first side of the argument first, which is the um, increasing um, polarization, and then we can deal. Actually, I can link that back into the truth-seeking side. So my challenge is something like this: in that I've I've read a lot of books in contemporary sort of empirically informed political theory that seem to take it as an obvious starting point that our discourse in American politics has become more polarized of late, and I think the data for that is pretty robust, right? But then the assumption is, well, how do we arrest that process or stop it or reverse it? Um, and my sort of challenge is, well, what if we 
don't. What if a polarised discourse is, for a variety of historical and cultural reasons, simply the reality in which we are all living? And you can say, well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't, but I can still dislike it. And at any rate, um, having a sort of two-teams politics where people participate almost more in the order of sports fans than of truth-seekers doesn't seem like a um, mechanism for um, producing truth. But actually, I think there's ways we could structure our politics such that a strongly partisan politics can produce truth, which is to say you adopt a more parliamentary style of politics in which governing becomes less the result of compromising consensus and more the result of one team winning, imposing an agenda, and being assessed on the basis of that agenda. And that's actually potentially um, a truth-seeking process. Now, it's not truth-seeking purely within the realm of public debate. It also requires a politics that's receptive to that. But I just want to challenge and push back on this premise that polarisation is necessarily bad. Surely polarisation is one form of political culture you can have, and it can be managed better or worse, just like a consensus-driven political culture is one form of culture that you can have. Whoever wants to take me up on that. Uh, I, I can say a little bit about that. Um, so, I mean, I think I agree with a, a lot of what you said. I mean, surely, uh, if if a polarized political culture is here to here to stay, um, we can manage it in in better and worse ways. Of course, that's right. Um, I can also imagine it being uh, truth seeking in in the way that that you pose, uh, where you have. Uh, people elected on an agenda and, and, you know, it's a sort of this team won and now they govern model and, and then we assess them. Um, that's right. Uh, we could, could also, that is one way of discovering the truth. Um, so I, do, I don't, I, so I think you're probably right to push back a little bit on uh, this idea that polarization is necessarily all bad. Uh, but I think there is still good reason to think that this is not ideal. Um, so one, one reason has to do with, uh, stability. So you might think, um, well, uh, we want coherent governance. Um, so it might be the, the right, okay. So we have the, this, this team one model, um, and, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll try their, their thing out. Um, but you know, we might not find out in time uh, whether their ideas were good uh, before uh, the next election is called or the, the next election is, is, is scheduled, right? So it might be that society is, is a very complicated and long-term process and we don't really see the results of interventions in, until it's, it's sort of too late in, in, in the case you're imagining. Uh, another reason uh, to dislike this uh, this model is we might worry that it undermines conditions of social trust. Uh, so if you know politics is is war, um, right, and you, you just either win or or you lose, uh, then I think it's it's easy to imagine uh, politics becoming dirtier, nastier, and, and even violent uh, because the stakes are then so high, right? Because if you lose, you're just out of power, and then you know um, you can. 
I mean, not not to be melodramatic, but you know, this people can end up in in camps, right? Uh, you uh, everything that you care about is just trampled over uh, because your side lost. Uh, so if this is how it's, it's going to go, uh, you can imagine things uh, going in the toilet pretty quickly. I think in in a lot of states. Let me um okay. So let me this is good. So let me push back on the pushback. Um, sure. So the idea, the first concern is like um the idea of like you know it, it might um be just you do something you don't get to see if it works it gets overturned and you go back and forth and back and forth again and i think the worry is that you you alternate governments and then the, the next one's just reversing everything the last one did um i think to some degree you can tell an idealized story of british political history that kind of contradicts that ignore for the minute the last four years of our political history <laughs> um but so we have a strongly parliamentary culture you vote for a national party and they can override the Bill of Rights one day and the Magna Carta the next, you know, which seems terrifying for Americans. But what happened? You know, starting with the Second World War, we had a strongly socialist government and created welfare state institutions like the NHS. We had a conservative government that undid a lot of that, but actually retained the bits that were really popular. Like, they retained the NHS and so on. You had some more Labour governments and you had potentially getting too left-wing on the side and giving unions too much power. You had Thatcherism as a course correction against that, and then you had Blairism as a course correction against Thatcherism. And actually, you can sort of argue that that process overall was quite truth-seeking, and this is quite idealised, I know, but over the course of the century, we, we empowered the more radical sides, and then we pushed back and took them out when they became less radical, and sort of ended up in a place of a balanced economy that has free markets and capitalism, but also has quite strong social protections, which is a reality a lot of us are quite comfortable with, you know? And that danger in reality of, like, you know, it'll just be reverse it, reverse it, reverse it, doesn't materialise because governments want to be re-elected, so they're not going to get rid of popular things that their predecessors did. They're only going to get rid of unpopular extreme moves. Now, that's quite idealised. I think why it doesn't work in the American case is if you're going to have that mechanism, you need to be able to judge it. If we're going to elect someone to, a, to implement a national agenda, there has to be the other part of that, which we can judge the national agenda. In America, we have a million checks and balances and procedural mechanisms to just slow the whole thing down. And if the average voter doesn't like the way things are going, it's actually quite difficult to know who's to blame for it, you know? So there's two ways you can go with that, and I think this is the choice Americans face. You can either go back to the compromise and consensus view, which works quite well with our institutions of checks and balances, or you can say we're probably kind of stuck with polarisation, in which case we need a sort of more British system. So I'll pause there. Mm. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I'm going to push back, but I, I should say I agree with at least you know some of the things that, that you said. Um, so I, I guess uh, I want to stress that when I, when I talk about stability, I, I mean um, as part of that robustness. Um, so you're right. Um, you know, uh, in, in par parliamentary systems, um, the more extreme factions are, are empowered in a way that they're not in, in, 
in something like the American system. Um, I guess, uh, so sorry to, to pick up the point about stability again. Um, so I think an ideal government should be robust against uh, certain um, threats. Uh, so, so that is to say, uh, you turn a dial, right, um, that's an, a non, an non-ideal condition, like people being very polarized. Uh, it's good for that system of government um, to not break, you know, when the dial's at four rather than at 10, right? Um, so now you said put aside the last four years and, you know, things are not ideal in, in America either. Um, but, but I guess, uh, so what I want to say then about polarization uh, to complete the sort of circuitous thought uh, is it seems to me this is one of those dials that um, we don't want to welcome being turned up too high. Um, and we should probably, you know, I don't have that strong uh, a feeling about these uh, institutional design choices. Um, but the challenges of polarization are something that, that I think are a good idea to, to protect against rather than uh, to, to welcome uh, and say, yeah, let's bring it, bring it. Let's, let's work with this. <laughs> I um, guess, I guess the, the, the only point is, and then I'll um, let Brandon get in on this if he has anything to say, is I, I think we can have a sort of John Stuart Mill perfect, and I like John Stuart Mill a lot, perfect view of, mm. like, this is a mechanism to get at the truth. And I think it can be that, and it can be that, like, in specific limited situations. Like, if we're all having a conversation, we can really set the parameters of that conversation and the norms with which we want to. But in terms of national conversations, I guess I'm just a little more sceptical that you're ever going to have a perfect truth-seeking procedure because with like a high polarization one it can be maybe a little bit truth-seeking in the way i described but no one would say that's an optimal truth-seeking procedure but the same way for compromise ones because what happens in compromise systems is you cut deals essentially right like this is how american government worked before it became polarized is it wasn't this great platonic public reason thing it was a bunch of people with their own incentives and they're like okay i'll vote for your bill if you build a factory in my town type of thing right well again is that truth seeking like maybe like it could be you could do like an idealized read where it is but it's not i don't think anyone would say it's optimal and so i wonder with the truth seeking things if we have to take a step down and say what 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 what's even gets us off the ground here? Like what's even close, as opposed to aiming for perhaps an unattainable standard in our national discourse? Mm. Yeah, I mean, so I guess, I guess to just give a very quick response, this is where I would I would fall back on uh, the second big sort of category of concerns, which uh, conditions of social trust. Uh, so so we want people. Uh, so I mean. I think uh, what's come out in, in this brief exchange uh, we've had is, is you're going to have compromise somewhere in the system. So you're either going to have it in, in campaigning and or, or in, in uh, governing, or you're going to have it in the sort of path dependence of people not wanting to, to overturn things and uh, that are popular and, and so on. I guess um, I I sort of worry that uh, the latter. Uh, the latter method of getting compromised, the one that you're that you're favoring, um, might make people more likely to feel cut out, uh, and so they'll they'll think, um, no, you, you know, the the NHS really is under threat, uh, right? Or, or uh, abortion rights really are under threat, 
right? Um, whereas in, in the sort of compromise and shared governance view, uh, you, you don't get that as much. I think it's a remarkable fact of both systems, the US and the UK, which we can view as, at least until recently, emblematic of the two different styles, is that social trust has declined in both of them. You know, like yeah. that's that's the depressing fact, and it's declined across yes. the board, particularly with young people. It's trusting each other, trusting government, is just falling, and um, that's that's a whole other podcast to do that. But it's, you know, if we're disagreeing or like contrasting views on that, it's it's worth noting that neither system has solved that problem well. You know. Um. Yeah, so I should say here, Brandon is 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 keeping quiet about this. I think he doesn't want to be too too gauche. But he has a colleague, Kevin Vallier, uh, who's who's. I've had I've had Kevin on the podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kevin's terrific. Uh, and I'm, I'm I, I think I'm trying to draw on him a, a little bit with this, this social trust stuff. Obviously, I know he has a, a lot to say about this, and he's very concerned about these trends that you're talking about. Okay, um, let's let's move on. Oh, before we do, is there anything you want to, uh, Brandon, um, pick up on just with that little exchange? Any additions? Well, I just I, I would just like to point out that um, so you know, like Justin and I are big fans of compromise, and but one thing we, we see... are not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're sort of we're sort of. All right, there we go. Um, Wait. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, one thing we think happens is that when you have a, a highly moralized and grandstanding rich environment, is it actually disincentivizes compromise? Because when you see the other side, not just as, you know, maybe mistaken or, you know, they have some wrong views because of how they grew up or something, but literally evil, right? Then any compromise will be rotten. And, and so one reason, so it's not just that the polarization pushes farther us apart, push, pushes us apart. You might think, okay, well, we can still compromise. But then you add in this other mechanism, which is that you have to see the other side as someone worth compromising with. And, um, and in virtue of the polarization, people are seeing the other side as not worth compromising with. So you can think of grandstanding as, in a way, not only pushing us further apart, but reducing our incentives from where we sit, um, uh, reducing our incentives to compromise. And the other worry is that in a grandstanding rich environment, when people start to see that people engage in discourse for self-promotion, they, they stop taking moral talk seriously. They become cynical. And so I, and I, and I think this is actually one driver I mean, we haven't tested this yet, but I suspect that one driver of decreased social trust is because people have um, uh, people have become more cynical about public discourse. And it has to do with um, I mean, I'm sure it's complicated, but social media and cable news, I suspect, are two big drivers here where it looks like people are um, self-promoting. Uh, trying to promote a narrative that's, that that is self-serving, and it happens on both sides. And once once this gets out, once it gets out that people are not acting in good faith in public discourse, trust in social discourse and trust in others to act in good faith goes down. And so, I mean, I think you're right that if if the only problem was polarization, maybe you can solve that with compromise. But then you add in. Um, disincentivizations to compromise, and then cynicism about public discourse, um, 
then I think we're in a much worse situation. I mean, I think we probably are in a situation where both sides don't regard each other as... I mean, how would we like it in an idealised world? Honourable competitors, shall we say. That there's a, there's a lack of trust between them. Um... I'll make a quick point, and then we should move on. Is I, I, I do always because I when I, when I hear this point, I do always want to make the point that I think that lack of trust that we can't trust the others with our rights is asymmetric, not in terms of the intensity with which it is felt, but in terms of the reasonableness of the fears that are being propagated. So there are a lot of conservative Christian groups in this country who really feel like a incoming liberal majority is not just going to um, legislate in the way they don't like. It's going to, like, outlaw Christianity or, like, really shut down the churches in some way um, in a way that there is just no desire on the left to actually do. The very worst you'd get is a changing of the tax codes so that churches pay more, which even that I don't think is going to happen, um, and I personally would oppose. But anyway, on, whereas on our side... Every time the Republicans are in power, they do things to shut out the electoral impact of poor and black voters, um, and they put things structurally in place to do that. So it's like, yeah, there's a lack of trust on the left, recognising the reality of what Republicans do when in office, and there's a lack of trust on the right based out of a more general fear of left-wing cultural hegemony that I don't think tracks to anything specific. So that was a bit of a an aside of how I see that. You can respond, or we can move on. Um, yeah, we can move on. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a nice point. It's, it's an empirical point um, that I, I don't really... Uh, I don't, maybe you just know a lot more. I, I just don't know enough. I mean, I... I do think that it is hard to get inside of the head of someone on the other side and to see their fears as rational when you don't see it as a threat, you know, and that, I think that does go for both sides. But, yeah, it's an empirical question. That I don't I don't have I don't have much to say about. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the fears aren't real. I think people really believe that they are under threat. I think there's just greater and lesser degrees of reasonableness to those fears. You can be afraid of something that's not actually, in reality, particularly threatening to you. Um, people are terrified of all sorts of stuff, you know? Um, but okay, let's move on. So that was the um, the sort of practical side. In, in the bit of time left to us, there's another argument you want to make, which is about virtue, which it's, you know, we've discussed, does grandstanding have good or bad consequences? I think you want to say something even more fundamental, which is, does it make you a good or a bad person to engage in this, right? Yeah, so we, we turn in, in this chapter on, on virtue um, to ask not just what are, are sort of the social effects of, of grandstanding or is grandstanding uh, respectful of, of other people, um, but w would a virtuous person grandstand? Uh, and we think probably not, uh, so for, for a few reasons. Uh, so the so one is... Uh, and sorry, these these map onto several approaches to virtue ethics. So one is the sort of classical uh, Aristotelian style, if if not Aristotelian, uh, quite literally, um, <clears throat> uh, on on which uh, virtue uh, is typically thought to be motivated um, either by uh, concern 
for or sorry, a virtuous action is motivated either by like some sort of altruistic concern for others, uh, or uh, by some concern to do just what is the right thing. So a, a kind of principled motivation uh, for acting. Now Aristotle himself is is more of an egoist, uh, at least to, according to to my colleague Howard Kurzer. Uh But uh, we think um, typically pe people think that actions done uh, out of purely self-motivated concern, at least uh, in, in certain areas, uh, are not virtuous. Uh, and morality is, is one of these areas. Uh, but, but take a related example. So suppose um, you, know, you have two people volunteering at uh, a soup kitchen. Um, one person does it because they just want to help the poor. They think it's the, you know, the right thing to do, or they care deeply about the poor. Uh, and another person uh, is just an actor doing kind of, uh, me you know, method research because uh, he he's, wants to play a poor person uh, in a movie. Now, outwardly, they're doing the same thing. And, and you might even think, you know, the, the actor is really like, you know, putting on a show, you know, being concerned. Someone, but but deep down, he's thinking, I just want to, like, buy more cocaine and like a fast car, um, you know, and, and be famous. Uh, and I, I think we, we tend to think this is not good, what, what he's doing. Like, it's, it's better than other things that he might do. Uh, but if we know this about what's motivating, we think that's not virtue. That's not virtuous behavior. Um Okay, so that, that's one uh, approach. Uh, on another approach, uh, virtue uh, is doing things or, or having traits that promote good consequences. So here we just sort of repeat then the, the arguments about costs that, uh, that we, we've already talked about, right? So if, if you think um, that, you know, acting vainly uh, when you participate in, in public debate um, has the consequences that that we've talked about, about uh, causing polarization, uh, about making people cynical about morality, about making moral talk work less well, um, then you'd again just have to overcome these the same arguments to show that it is good uh, that people um, have this, you know, this recognition desire that, that we talk about, uh, that they are motivated uh, to seek status uh, through, through participating in public discourse. And then finally, we, we take a, a kind of Nietzschean line uh, and, and say, um, you know, uh, um, moral grandstanding is uh, a sort of uh, seizing power in, in a way. So Nietzsche thinks that, that everything we, we do is, is motivated by this will to power. We you know, overcome some obstacle. Um, and grandstanding is, is just kind of a cheap way of of doing this because it, it takes uh, a tool that everyone is is sort of um, inclined to have positive feelings about. So, you know, in, invocations of, of rights and justice and other other popular values. Uh, and what grandstanders do is they take these these popular values or, or slogans about them uh, and go around in, in public discourse um, vanquishing foes. Um, to feel to feel powerful, to you know, to to feel like I'm I'm dominating, you know, these these fools um, who who have all the wrong moral views. Um, so we say, uh, I mean, so you know, for Nietzsche, it's like this is all morality is at all, uh, and and we th or at least you know, slave morality, the the popular morality of our day, uh, and we say, well, 
we, we actually kind of like some of the, you know, the morality that, that Nietzsche thinks is, is degenerate. Um, and it's, it's just sort of ugly people using it this way. So we agree with him, uh, up to that point, uh, that we think, um, this is a, a kind of perversion of, of morality to see it as, as something to, uh, to dominate other people, to, to make yourself feel effective. Um, so, uh, borrowing this line from, from David Schmitz, uh, if, if what you care about is showing that your heart is in the right place, your heart's not in the right place. Uh, so this is what we think people are doing when they have this kind of will to power uh, approach to, to moral discourse. They're just trying to like enhance their status and show my, you know, my heart is, is in the right place and I'm better than all these people whose heart is, is not in the right place. Uh, and we think, you know, that's just not what morality is all about. Um, I, I think I might like the last argument the best, the sort of yeah. urge to dominate one. Um, I've spent a bit of time with like modern Republican theory, which is obviously very concerned mm. with like questions of domination. And I'm, I like see myself as a liberal, but I'm a weird sort of liberal that takes a lot of notes from um, that sort of approach, and that it isn't all just rational self-interest. There is this other urge which sort of runs alongside it, but is distinct, which is this urge to have someone beneath you. Mm, yeah, yeah. Not just what's your position on the ladder, but is there someone below me who I can put my foot on? And I think once you start seeing the world through that lens, you see it mm. everywhere. And that yeah. you could definitely read that into a lot of the ways people talk to each other in very charged moral terms. Yep. Yep. Uh, I think, I think that's totally right. So, so one of the things that I, I feel like I see all the time and, and maybe you, you feel this way too, um, is I see people not wanting to be bested, uh, in, in moral So So they're, they're, they're always, um, you know, when someone's just lost, uh, a moral argument, they try at, at the very end to like wriggle out of it somehow, or, um, you know, uh, and you know, I guess if they're on the receiving end of someone's like dominance grandstanding, then uh, I, th I think, well, I mean, maybe they should do that. But, you know, uh, often the conversation that's gotten them there is a kind of test of, of wills, like who's who's going to to make the other the other person look bad. Uh, and this is just not how it's supposed to go. Right? I mean, surely. So I mentioned this story on the last episode I did, which was about the presidential election, and I recalled a time when I was trying to convince someone that even though they were very strong Bernie Sanders, to just look, just vote for Hillary, right, she's better than Trump, and they would make arguments, and, I, and they were coming from a strongly left-wing position, and I'd sort of rebut them and say, look, whatever you're concerned about, be it the environment or whatever... Hillary's better than Trump from the position of your ideology. And after I'd sort of exhausted the arguments, they slammed their fist on the table like that and said, who indoctrinated you? And, just thought... and it was just this moment of like, I'm not going to be bested, I'm not going to be crushed, and I'm going to recall this thing of like, I'm saying what I'm saying because I'm yeah. more virtuous than you. And I'm better yeah. than you. And I kind of, I did exactly the wrong thing. And I kind of giggled a little. And I was like, are you really fucking saying this to me? And, uh, and they went, you, when did you sell out to the establishment? And I'm like, okay, we're, we're done here. You could read that Nietzschean, I'm, I'm almost interpreting it as like a domination neo-republican theory. You yeah, could read yeah. that into it, right? Of like, it's not about who's right. It's about, like, who's in charge, who yeah. wins, you know? 
yeah and i think that i i think that might be the argument that sold me the most like yeah and so and yes yeah, so you can see this sort of uh so i mean recalling pettit's language right yeah. so if you think that's what's going on in moral discourse you see it just as the imposition of someone's arbitrary will on you yes yes so yes, you're yes. so concerned then about about you know being made like the plaything of, of someone else through this thing that you're not i mean apparently like not not taking taking in the right way yeah um yeah that's great i hadn't thought about the republican angle but i I like that yeah i've i've done a bit with it i mean i think it's an open question how far you can square that with a more sort of classical liberalism i I don't have a fully theorized account of that but the, the way i see it is it's almost like two different pairs of glasses you can look at the world through and like the classical liberal one is a pretty good one but then sometimes you put the domination one on, and it's like you just see so much that the other pair of glasses wasn't showing you, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, li- I mean, so I'm not ultimately sure what I think of the Republican conception of freedom, but mm. uh, but that's that's a cool, yeah, that's a cool connection. All right, um, so that was a bit of a tangent, and we just, that's okay. we yeah. just passed an hour. Um <laughs> Um, Brandon, anything you want to get in before we close, either on what we were just discussing or in general? No, I mean, I, I too find the Nietzschean argument pretty, pretty persuasive. I mean, you think about what an excellent person would do. Excellent people are engaged in worthwhile pursuits. Um, excellent people are not going to be engaged in petty attempts to um, gain status and dominate others. By using morality, I mean that's the thing. That's the thing they're using is 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 the is the morality system to to dominate others, and I think that's just pathetic. Uh, so yeah, in the book we sort of, you know, that's in a way the very last argument we give before we turn to other things, and it's it's our strongest condemnation of grandstanding is that it's it's just pathetic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. People who have to be in charge no matter what. Um, yeah. There's a line in Machiavelli um, where he says the monstrous tyranny of petty privilege and the idea <laughs> of the worst people in the world are people with just a little bit of power, like the bouncer at the, the club or, mm. you know, the, the guy who's just got a shift supervisor position or whatever. Like people who have to take whatever little edge you give them and just use it to just crush everyone under them. And if people are using moral language to do that, that argument makes a, a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Um, okay, um, so do you want to just tell listeners um, when the book's out, where they can go to get it, and if they want to follow either of you on social media or anything like that, where would you like to send people listening to this? Sure. Uh, so the book uh, officially releases in stores on may 1st you can pre-order now on um, amazon or the oxford university website or your favorite um independent bookseller should have it on online if they don't they they will soon um the book's 20 dollars. it's hardback it's got a lovely lovely elegant cover of a peacock feather that can adorn your home or your bookshelf um and then uh i'm on twitter i i'm bad at twitter i don't know i haven't figured out twitter yet i i think to be really good at twitter you have to you have to like be really mean or something so or be really funny and i'm neither of those but my but my twitter handle is brandon warmke okay cool uh justin 
Uh, so I'm funnier than Brandon and I'm on Twitter. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I try to post about the book and, and related things, but I also post inappropriate things. So be warned. Um, yeah, I think Brandon got the, the details covered. So please do pre-order our book, uh, and send us, send us mean or, or nice notes about it. Yeah. If you look, if you truly care about justice <laughs> or family values, um, you will order the book straight away. Clearly, this is this is yeah. the only thing an excellent no. person would do, right? Yeah. If you yeah. don't, I money. If you don't, sure. we're coming for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Toby, thanks so much. No, no, thank you both of you for yeah. coming on. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, yeah this is a blast, Toby. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>